Jeremiah 12, verse 1. Um, I'm in Isaiah 12, so I'll join you in Jeremiah 12 because Isaiah 12 is an awesome chapter, but not for today. Jeremiah 12, 1. Jeremiah is praying. He's talking to God, and he says, Righteous are you, O Lord, when I complain to you. Yet I will plead my case before you. And here's the first of three questions that he asks God. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all who are treacherous thrive? Now listen to what he says to God. He's talking to God. He says, you plant them and they take root. They grow and produce fruit. You are near in their mouth and far from their heart. But you, O Lord, know me. You see me. You test my heart toward you. Here's a nice little prayer to add to your devotional time tomorrow. Pull them out like sheep for the slaughter and set them apart for the day of slaughter. How long will the land mourn and the grass of every field wither for the evil of those who dwell in it? The beast and the birds are swept away because they said, the people said to God, he will not see our latter end. In other words, they're saying, God ain't watching. And here's God's answer to Jeremiah, the last verse I'm going to read. He's speaking to Jeremiah, and he says this. If you have raced with men on foot, and they have wearied you, how will you compete with horses? And if in a safe land you are, it's the, the, the vibe is, if you are only so trusting in a safe land, what will you do in the thicket of the Jordan? I just want to pray. And I'm going to ask you to pray over your own heart and to get honest with yourself. And just maybe if you don't even know, just say, Lord, if I'm, a, if I'm sleeping through the alarm, tell me today. And so, Father, as we come to you, I'm asking for a right now word to be released. I thank you for ancient scripture. Father, we're not here to do history. We need a word for this contemporary generation. We need a right now word. I'm asking you, Lord Jesus, that you will intercede specifically before the Father right now for those gathered in the room. You, you live always to make intercession for us. Intercede for our hearts right now. That we may be sobered without being terrorized, that we may be awakened without being panicked, that we may be humbled without despairing. And Lord, for those that are here today who have never known your son and he has not known them by way of salvation, Please give a little more intensity to the alarm that they may awaken out of sleep, O sleeper, and call upon the name of the Lord while he is near. In Jesus' name, amen. So Jeremiah's ministry was not one that you or I would want. Jeremiah was a faithful, passionate, transparent prophet 
He was preaching in one of the most difficult seasons of Israel's history because he was getting consistent words from the Lord spanning decades that judgment was going to come to the people of God. And nobody listened to him. Best I can tell in reading through his prophecy, which is a very long prophecy, the book of Jeremiah, best I can tell, nobody ever repented. No, nobody that we read of specifically, best I can tell, ever humbled themselves at the word of the Lord coming from Jeremiah. As a matter of fact, he was intensely resisted. He was persecuted. He, he suffered violence because he remained faithful to the Lord. And he's preaching and suffering and preaching and suffering and preaching and being mocked. Preaching and taking his, having his freedom taken away. Preaching and being beaten. Preaching and being threatened with death. And all he's doing is waking up every day and wrestling through his own humanity, asking God some tough questions from Jeremiah, not tough for God to answer, but asking the tough stuff. And the response of his culture, his peers, was to muzzle him, silence him, mock him, and reject him. And meanwhile, as he's the faithful prophet of God, speaking the word of the Lord and suffering for it, Everybody that he's preaching to, the culture at large, the leaders, the false religious leaders and the compromised civic leaders, they're all prospering. To the naked eye, they're think, they're, you would think they're blessed. Their bank accounts are growing. Their influence is growing. They're living the good life. And Jeremiah enters, he goes in and out through this long book. He goes in and out of moments where he is convinced and then he's struggling, and then convinced, and then struggling. And chapter 12 is one where he's struggling with what he sees. And so he goes before the Lord with some questions, and the response of God in verse number five is, is just what compels me to think, because I, I, I don't know the right word. I'm going to say it this way. I really feel like verse five is something that Lord is speaking over the church today. It's nuanced differently, but it's the same vibe that the Lord is sharing. So we'll work our way towards it. First of all, I want you to see where Jeremiah went. In the beginning of verse number one, he's in a state of perplexity. He's struggling with God. He's struggling with what he sees. And so he begins to speak to God. And he says, righteous are you, O Lord, when I complain to you. Yet I would plead my case before you. Let me tell you that ancient Jews do not pray and speak to God like 21st century Bible Belt evangelicals. Um, we sometimes read the Psalms and the discourse between a saint of God and the, in the Old Testament talking to God. And sometimes I'm like, did, did he really say that to God? They are bold they sometimes strip completely all religious etiquette. Sometimes when I read it, were it not scripture I was reading, I would think that's borderline irreverent what you just said to God. And I love that there's a little flavor of that here with Jeremiah. Jeremiah comes and he declares the holy beauty of God. You are righteous, O Yahweh, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You are righteous, meaning you are upright in your character, and everything you do is just and right. So Jeremiah prefaces what he's about to release with a, a, dis, a, a, a disclaimer. He says, I know you're good. I know you're right. And then he says this, but I'm still bringing you something that I feel like I need to complain about. 
I love that, man. If, by the way, I'm just gonna add, I'm gonna try to pastor us a little bit in this message. This is not a pastoral kind of passage. It's more of a prophetic passage, but I will say this. You, might, you and I might start seeing more breakthrough in our prayers if we would drop the pretense with the Almighty and just say, I know I'm not allowed to struggle with you and I know everything you're doing is great and I'm not supposed to because I'm a good Western evangelical 21st century Bible Belt Christian, but I wanna tell you, I don't know what you're doing. It makes no sense. But we don't do that. We just say, too blessed to be stressed. <laughs> when we're not, we're not blessed and we are stressed, but we say, too blessed to be stressed. So Jeremiah doesn't, doesn't play around with that, and he says, I want to plead my case before you. So he's literally coming into the presence of the judge above every judge, the righteous and holy God. He says, I know who you are, but I need to say this. I, I've got some evidence I need to present before you and I'm hoping that you'll see things my way. Now, he doesn't say that, but there could be no other motivation. Jeremiah may not think he can change the mind of the Almighty, but he's got something burning in his bones that he needs to release. And so he, he prefaces his words with this admission that he was coming before the Lord to pour out his complaint and to plead his, his case. And so let's go a little bit further into it. Beyond where he went, he went to the Lord with his struggle. By the way, you're allowed to struggle in the very same way as Jeremiah is. But the difference between him and maybe some of us is that Jeremiah actually got proactive with what he's discouraged about instead of crumbling into a silent puddle of self-pity. And he said, Lord, I need to talk to you about this. And God is all ears. He's omniscient ears. And so look at what Jeremiah was seeing. This is where Jeremiah starts describing his generation. He asks God the first question. He says, why does the way of the wicked prosper? And then he adds to it, why do all those who are treacherous, villainous, vicious, why are they thriving? And watch this. You planted them. They take root. They grow and produce fruit. You're near in their mouth, but far from their heart. Now, I don't want to ascribe motive to Jeremiah, but let's take his words at face value. He's saying to the Lord three things. I think we can, we can break down to three things here. First of all, he's saying, Lord, you're righteous and you're holy, but I'm struggling because before your omniscient eyes, oh, you righteous, holy judge, you're letting injustice happen in this land because nobody in here has ever felt that way or thought that. This is, this is good for us to see that God preserved in Scripture somebody that got in his presence and said, I know you're good, but why are you letting all this stuff happen? It frees me up to know that when I see this, I'm not the only one struggling with it. But Jeremiah, so he's demanding to know, first of all, why are all the wicked people in my generation continuing to prosper? And why, Lord... Why do they seem immune to the trouble that is compounding upon me? Why are they allowed to experience pleasure and riches where I, your prophet in a disobedient generation, I'm a faithful man of God, Lord. Why am I suffering while they're prospering when I'm loyal and they're not? He says, Lord, it's, it's, it's unjust. 
Jeremiah's prophecy, his book of Lamentations too, reveal a very passionate, emotional. Jeremiah is a feeler. I mean, he feels what's going on. Some of us are wired to calculate and see it, but it doesn't really move our hearts. That can, can be a strength, but a lot of the times it's a weakness because everything's data, and Jeremiah was actually in it. He was feeling it. He couldn't just process what was happening intellectually. He's groaning on the inside. And, he, and in essence, what he's saying is, Lord, this injustice is wrong. And so that leads him to the second part of what he asked God. He said, I, in essence, his, his words, he says, you planted them. Can you see that? This is wrong. And you're the one making it happen. You're the one who planted them. They're growing. They've taken root. They're stable. They're bearing all of this fruit. And literally, his view of the sovereignty of God was so strong that he's saying, Lord, you've done this, and underneath what he's saying is the element somewhere in there is, I don't think that you should have. I don't think you should have done it. And so he's expressing this frustration with God. This is a little awkward. Um, I, I still uh, admire greatly Jeremiah's transparency and his boldness on this thing because although we read it and at least when I read it, I'm like, hey, if I'm in the room with Jeremiah, I'm like, shh, shh. No, Sing a song, do something. That's not how we pray. Oh, man, don't you know who you're talking to? And Jeremiah's just like, why don't you shut up because I need some answers. So it gets a little awkward because he's basically wondering if God has done something wrong. And again, I, I do want to say this. There are many in the body of Christ who feel that way about things that have happened in their life, or we're looking at the culture today, and injustice is abounding. I, I'm living with the daily feeling that God's about to pull the lid off of about a thousand different scandals, from the church to the government to business leaders to athletes. I just feel like we're in a season where God's saying, yeah, I'm, I'm going to uncap all of this, and I'm just going to expose all of it. And, and we're, meantime, we're living in this injustice, and we're like, what in the world is going on? And it's not uncommon for, for saved people to say, Lord, you're good, therefore you should not allow any of this to happen. You ought to be judging this stuff. Be careful in praying that kind of stuff, because you know if you pray for him to do it to them, that you're also praying for him to do it to you. Yeah. A little wisdom there will kind of give us a little caution. I want justice, and it will come, but I am perfectly comfortable with God doing it when God wants to do it because it will be perfect timing. And meanwhile, it's the goodness of God that is creating space to lead people to repentance. And so his frustration with God is, um, is pretty apparent. I, I love the fact that the Lord doesn't just incinerate Jeremiah. There's not like a little smeak, uh, smoking pile of Jeremiah juice down there. I mean, God could just boom, how dare you? But he doesn't do that. He just lets Jeremiah talk. That's the same way he invites uh, us to. He's heard it all before. You're not the first person that wonders what in the world you're doing, and if you're good, how come this? And you fill in the blank. And then Jeremiah also gives the third element. So it's, it's not just this injustice and this frustration with God, but now he looks at, at religious people. And he calls out their hypocrisy in the presence of God. And so in this final portion of his vent, he's expressing his outrage when he says, yeah, you're near in their mouth, but you're nowhere near in their heart. We can put it this way. Lord, they go to Newbridge every Sunday. 
They do the GBF at IHOP Atlanta the first of every month. They preach, they sing, they teach, they fast. And Lord, they got all of the lingo down. But God, I see some things. And you're easy off the lips, but you're distant in their heart because they won't let you rule there. That's a very dangerous place for any of us to go, by the way, because none of us are qualified to discern or judge what goes on inside of somebody. But we do, we, we do see in Scripture, clearly Jesus taught this. He said, you watch a tree long enough and you start examining the fruit that comes off of it, you'll know what kind of tree it is. And Jeremiah is standing before a, a tree singing about being an apple tree, but it's producing rotten pears. And he's saying, Lord, what about the hypocrisy? So before moving on, this is his struggle. He's trying his best to live for the Lord. He's serving God. He's taking his lumps for the glory of Yahweh. He's being rejected by his culture. He's being persecuted. Nobody's getting saved. Nobody's repenting. I don't want to minimize that because some of us, if we don't find our platform three months after our calling, and if we don't have, you know, 40,000 followers on social media, and if people aren't singing our songs or podcasting our sermons and our platform is not growing, we feel so violated. Oh, I'm just over here suffering for Jesus because nobody likes my tweets. Listen, there's going to be a little bit of an edge to some of this because i got to get where we live. It can't all be up there in the clouds. Some of this stuff's got to come home. And, and, you know, Jeremiah is legitimately suffering in faithfulness, and it wasn't a month, a year, or five years. It was decades. And that is a hard uh, burden to carry. And meanwhile, all the people that he knows needs to repent, they're on the increase. Jeremiah is on the decrease, and he finally reaches a point, 11 chapters in, he says, God, I need to talk to you about this imbalance because I believe if you're good, then things ought to be made right and right now. And so Jeremiah is going to gain some wisdom seemingly even as he's praying. We move to verse number three, and Jeremiah starts recognizing something. I believe this is happening as Jeremiah is praying. He says this, but you, O Lord, you know me. You see me, and you're testing my heart toward you. It's two things here. It's either um, what we call an indicative. Jeremiah is indicating what is happening, or it, it may be a bit of an imperative. Jeremiah is saying, please do this. Not sure which one it is, but they both lead to the same result. He's saying, first of all, he's saying, Lord, I see all this injustice. I see all this hypocrisy. You're righteous. I don't know what's going on. I don't like what I'm seeing. I'm, I'm, I'm running with hypocrites. I'm preaching to hypocrites. Nobody's repenting. They're getting blessed. You're not doing anything. And then he just kind of catches himself in a moment. And he says, but you know who I am. And I know your eyes on me and I know you're testing me. That's what I believe the vibe is. I don't believe he's necessarily saying, Lord, I want you to test my heart because you won't find any hypocrisy in there. I think it's more of an issue of he's saying, you're testing me. What does that mean? Well, sometimes the Lord's will is so concentrated to purify our faith that he will leave us in the most uncomfortable position until in our discomfort, every ounce of impatience is purged. 
In our discomfort, every sense of entitlement is removed. In our discomfort, he is saying, you still feel owed by me. I love you, but I don't owe you. And until you repent of feeling like I owe you, I'm just going to have to leave you there because I've got purposes for you and plans for you that can't be accomplished when you feel like you're owed. That's what happens every time. Listen, I, I don't want to run rabbit trails today. But I spent a very prolonged season years ago, very prolonged, where everything that was happening around me felt wrong. And most of what was happening in, in me felt bad. Wrong on the outside, bad on the inside. I cannot believe my wife still has respect for me because in some of those days, I was the puddle of Jeremiah who had melted into self-pity on some of those days. But the, the beautiful thing is, is he who begins the good work in you will complete it. Sometimes you have to wait until the day of Jesus Christ, but sometimes you just got to wait until his moment is accomplished in your life. And some of y'all are in that crucible. You're waiting. You're saying, this is wrong. This is wrong. Injustice is happening. It can be uh, national injustice. It could be political injustice, racial injustice, sexism, genderism. It could be ageism, all of the isms and injustices in our land. And when it, it's fine, I guess, for people when it's a theory to them, but when that injustice splashes on you and you're saying, ow, or ooh, or mm, and God's just standing still. You know me, you see me, and you test my heart. In the midst of everything Jeremiah was seeing in his culture and experiencing, somehow he recognized in the midst of this on some level is a testing of who I am before the eyes of the Almighty. Um, I, I don't want to get cliche, but I just want to remind all of us your testing season reveals who you already are. That's one of the things God wants us to know. He wants us to know who we are and where we are. And sometimes the only way that that happens, because we're all addicted to fresh glasses of new wine. New wine, surge, blessing, power. We want to experience your glory. I mean, listen, I don't apologize for that. That's all good stuff from the Lord. But again, it comes back to this, hey, you, you're all, I love you, Jeff. You are always calling out for new wine. You love it when I pour out the new wine. But I tell you what I'm going to do, because I got a lot of new wine I want to bring to you. I want to bring for you. I want to bring through you. So I'm going to put you in the wine press a little bit. I'm going to put the squeeze on you, son. And we're like, oh, I, don't, I don't really think I need new wine. <laughs> the old is good. We're all right. But here's what happens. You get to the point where you're like, nah, I, if the wine press is the only way, I'm going to get in the press as long as you're in the press with me because you, you know me and you see me and you test my heart. And for some of you right now, you're in the press. You're not imagining it. You're not being overly dramatic. He puts his kids in the press, not because he's a cruel tyrant, because it's the means by which he answers the deepest groanings of our soul. And when, if we always avoid the press, then we never taste the new wine. 
And so Jeremiah is getting some clarity on this thing. So we move a little bit further down. We get down in the second half of verse 3, and there's only five verses. So forgive me for, like, getting really meticulous about this, but so much of this is just, like, right now, and i got to get us to verse 5. Here's what Jeremiah longed for. This is good. So he's saying, Lord, you're testing me. So here's where I am in the exam right now. Here's what I'd really like for you to do. Pull all these people out like sheep for the slaughter and set them apart for the day of slaughter. One slaughter is intense. He got two slaughters in in the first part of a prayer. And then, he, and then he adds this. He's like, how long is the land of Israel, this promised land, the inheritance of our people, how long is it going to mourn? How long is the grass of every field going to wither? And Lord, in case you don't know, the reason why the land is mourning and why the land is, where the fields are withering is because of the evil people in the land. And Lord, it's affecting us agriculturally. He might have been referencing the periodic droughts and the famines that hit the land. And remember, they're an agrarian society, so it's their income, it's their livelihood, it's their survival. If the crops aren't producing, the people die. And Jeremiah, with prophetic discernment, is seeing what other people aren't seeing. You know, you got the elite that are prospering, but you got the average Joe Israelite or Yosef Israelite, Yosef, that's what it is. And, and you got him, and, and he's suffering. Why? Because the judgment of God might be falling on the land and the crops are drying up and the beast of the field can't live. And so Jeremiah is seeing the writing on the wall. And so he's coming to God and he's saying, Lord, the very inheritance that you gave us as your people is, is drying up. And it's because of the evil people that you're not doing anything about. And Lord, I'm going to tell on them. I've been hanging out. And when I'm preaching, do you know what this one says? He says, you're not watching. They will not see our latter. He will not see our latter end. It's a kind of an ambiguous statement in the English. It doesn't exactly flow. If you've got a modern prayer paraphrase, they probably help us understand it. But this is what he's saying. He's saying the people are saying it one of two things or both of these things. He's saying, Jeremiah, we hear you're barking. You've been barking for 20 years. We know your message, dude. It is so old. And if you were a true prophet, it already would have happened. So why don't you find something new to preach? Because I'm going to tell you, God's not watching us like you're watching us. God's not as upset with us as you think he's upset. And Jeremiah, I'm going to tell you something. We're going to keep doing what we're, we've been doing, and God's not going to do a thing about it. That's either what they're saying, or they may be saying to Jeremiah, you ain't going to be around while we still go on. You won't see the end of our lives. We'll see the end of yours, but you won't see our latter end. Either way, they're fully, aggressively rejecting the word of the Lord that was the actual word of the Lord. There's a, uh, oh, Lord, where is that verse? Man, I am getting old. My son told me on the way over here, he goes, what you wearing, Dad? So what are you talking about? He's like, you're dressing like you're 22. How old are you? <laughs> right, well, Landon, I'm 49, and my lack of memory can prove it because I'm trying to remember a verse right now. But this is what it says. I can't remember the reference. He said this. Lord said, um, because justice is not executed speedily, the heart of man is fully set to do evil. 
I don't know where that is, but it's in the Bible. It's, it's either in Proverbs or Ecclesiastes because justice is not executed speedily. The heart of man is fully set to do evil. What does that mean? It means because you got away with it yesterday, you presume you're going to get away with it tomorrow. There's my man. Ecclesiastes 8.11 for anybody taking notes. Jeremiah is being told, if God was going to do something about it, Jeremiah, he would have already done it. Jeremiah has preached and preached and preached and nobody is repenting because every preacher wants to see people repent and get saved but you go a few decades and nobody gets converted you just know Lord just kill them all <laughs> just kill them Lord they ain't ever going to repent I want to go down to the coast I want to finish out my years on the beach Lord if you'll kill them I'll write a summary report and, and I go on with my life I, I, I listen and, and just on a serious note there's probably moments in our lives where we're not operating the grace of God, we're not realizing how much mercy we ourselves have received, and we see wickedness abounding or hypocrisy among the people of God, and there's times where we're just like, get them, Lord, do something. And those are not strong moments, those aren't healthy moments for us, but I think we ought to be as honest as Jeremiah and just say, Lord, this, this is just in me. I know it's not right. Slaughter, slaughter is not you know, a really merciful prayer. But, but Lord, when are you going to do something? Because ultimately, they're, they're mocking you. They're rejecting you. Isn't it amazing that God is slower to defend his own reputation than we're uh, slow to defend his reputation, or we're quick to defend his reputation? Sometimes, you know, we feel like, you know, we're, we're the deputized sheriffs, and our, our job is to go out there and just, you know, we're here to defend God's name. And I get there might be an aspect of that to, to the Christian life, but I'm going to tell you, man, he's able to defend his name. And he is far more gracious and compassionate and merciful than you and I are. And Jeremiah is just revealing that, that longing for God to do something. Now, the conversation on Jeremiah's end, at least for these five verses, it, it ends right there. That's the last thing Jeremiah gets to suggest to the Almighty. He's like, kill them all and here's what I love let me get to verse 5 this is how God responds to Jeremiah I'll, I'll read the verse in a second but let me tell you what he doesn't do Jeremiah you know what you, you are faithful and you're so committed come on let's go for a walk come on, come on. it's okay it's alright son tussle his hair come on Jeremiah come on and you know what I see that. I, I see. Yeah, they are unjust. And I thank you for, for telling me that because I didn't know that. I, I, I had not seen that. And those hypocrites, what would I have done if you hadn't pointed those out to me? And Jeremiah, you, you're, you know what? You're just awesome. Come here. Can I hug you? Sometimes when we get in that plan, I know that's silly. It's, it's quite exaggerated. But sometimes we think... God, nobody sees reality like I see reality. I'm not even sure if you do, because if you did see it like I did, you'd be doing something about it. And God does not come in and apologize to Jeremiah for allowing injustice to continue. He does not apologize for all of the hypocrites not being slaughtered. He doesn't apologize for the wicked 
being allowed to prosper and the treacherous being allowed to thrive. This is not a conversation where God answers a single one of Jeremiah's questions. He doesn't even address the substance of Jeremiah's complaint. Jeremiah probably, you know, goes before the Lord thinking, okay, we're going to have a, we're going to have a discussion about this thing. And Jeremiah just, he gives all of the, the expression of his discouraged, struggling heart. And God doesn't hug him. God doesn't tell him, it's all right, man, it's all about to get better. Wait, just wait a minute, Jeremiah. It's going to be glorious. It's going to be so good, Jeremiah. You're going to love what's coming. There's no encouragement. There's no compassion. There's no hollow promises of your best life now. Sorry. It's not that kind of message that Jeremiah receives from the Lord. Look at what God says. They'll put this up on the screen. Jeremiah, if you've raced with men on foot and they have wearied you, how will you compete with the horses? And if in a safe land you're only so trusting, what will you do in the thicket of the Jordan? Now, we have to linger here for the rest of our time. Jeremiah is being communicated to by God in a little bit of a poetic, symbolic language. And the motif is warfare. So Jeremiah is not imagining things. He's very clearly seeing that there's a collision of ideals happening in the land of Israel. There's a collision of ways, a collision of viewpoints, belief systems, and behaviors. Jeremiah is not wrong in recognizing that he is distinct from much of the culture. He's living faithfully. He's living and honoring the Lord. He's paying the price, and he's suffering for it. He's not imagining any of that. That's all real. And he's not imagining that the people who are hypocrites are flagrantly disregarding God. He's not imagining the fact that they're prospering. God doesn't rush in and say, no, 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 they're, they're actually not prospering. God, God doesn't invalidate Jeremiah's complaint. Jeremiah's seeing things factually, but he's missing things in what God is actually doing through those facts. And so he says this, he says, Jeremiah, you're right. You're in the middle of a war, but Jeremiah, I, I've got to tell you something, son. This is actually the easy days. Jeremiah, these are the foot soldiers. You're struggling at level one. Your snowflake's about to melt, son. You're at level one. And I'm telling you, if you're melting at level one, as faithful and spiritual as you are, you are not ready for level five and it's coming. What is level five? The horsemen. I would, I would say contextually, there's an allusion here to the Babylonian invasion. They'll be coming in. There's actually a historical context here. Jeremiah, you're struggling with your fellow country, countrymen and that's bad, but, but son, I'm telling you, that's level one. Wait till the Babylonians come in. And they did. They did during Jeremiah's ministry and lifetime. I want you to consider something, that the days in which we are living right now, Christians, we are in the United States of America, 
which is the easiest place on the planet to be a follower of Jesus. And we, in this room, are in the Bible Belt, which is the easiest place in the easiest country on the planet to be a Christian. And these are easy days. And some of us, hard truth here, are melting, complaining, whining, pitying, and departing at level one because we say it's so hard. And the word of the Lord all throughout Scripture, especially intensely prophetic passages, is that this is the easiest it will ever be again before the second coming. Jeremiah, Jeff, if you're getting knocked around at level one, I need to sound an alarm because level five is coming and you're not ready. Newbridge, IHOP Atlanta, Metro Atlanta. We're at level one and I'm watching people flake out on God. I'm watching people that are feeling infringed upon. I'm gonna get bold with you here. Feeling infringed upon when times of fasting and prayer are set up that we might pursue the heart of the Father. Feeling infringed upon when calls to service are given. Feeling infringed upon when their call to missionary status involves the hard work of partner development. And you have to actually put yourself out there and humble yourself and find who God has appointed to be your partners. And a lot of people say no. And you're like, well, man, somebody's got to make this happen for me. Feeling infringed upon. And then outside of the ministry context, we're Christians. And, and we're in this land of opportunity and this land of religious freedom. And yet we're ashamed of the Son of God at work and we're ashamed of the Son of God at school and we're ashamed. Say, Jeff, I'm not ashamed. We're too ashamed to speak of Him, too ashamed to, to impart His truths, too ashamed to stand unapologetically when all of the, the cultural talk comes and lands in our lap in the break room at work and all of them are eagerly and passionately touting what they believe and we are wallflowering backwards because we don't want to offend anybody. It's level one. We're level one. The reality is that Scripture reveals that not just level five is coming, but off the charts, no metric is coming. And it's coming, and I know, especially in the Bible Belt, especially in certain denominational trends, have all given us this, this promise that, oh, you don't have to worry about any of that because we're just going to be whisked away and it's never going to hit. There'll be absolutely no suffering for the people of God because Jesus is going to come and rescue us before any of that hits. Really? Tell that to our Middle Eastern brothers and sisters. Tell that to the Christians in North Korea. Tell that to the Christians in Nigeria. Tell them that no suffering is ever going to hit because Jesus is going to whisk us away. It can't be true because it's already happening. It's not an American gospel. It's not an American version of eschatology. It's already beginning to happen. And Christians have been intoxicated on this myth that we're never going to have to suffer anything. 
because Jesus, after all, would never allow that to happen. Then, then I'll say this, and I mean this reverently. If that's true, then he's got some apologizing to do to the people in the Middle East right now. They're watching their family members being beheaded and the women are being raped and the little children are being sold into slavery because they're Christians. But in our insulated bubble in the church in America, at level one, we're upset because we didn't like the songs on Sunday. The greeter had coffee breath. I'll never go back. The preacher was too long or too short. That'll never happen here, but too long. Or he, pre- he, he doesn't validate my pet doctrine. He doesn't. I don't have to belabor that. What I'm saying is this. What level of heat causes you to melt? We have to discern that. And if we're melting at level one, remember, this isn't supposed to be like an indictment. This isn't supposed to be a shaming session. It's an alarm. I have to answer the question, where am I with the Lord that if I can't be like Jesus when I'm offended in a nanosecond because somebody inconvenienced me, where am I with Jesus? What am I going to do? I'm doing this level, only so little trust and hope at level in the safe land. What am I going to do in the thickets of Jordan? See, the Jordan, when it would rise and overflow its banks, it would often do so rapidly. And the area around some of the banks of the Jordan was covered in thickets. And if you were in the wrong place at the wrong time and the level began to rise and you had to run, you're trapped in the thickets and you may not be able to get through it quickly enough. And what he's saying is this. He said, when the floods come and you're trapped in the thorns of the cares of this world, what are you going to do? Guys, I'm just going to tell you, and I think I speak on behalf of our leadership team here. I'm, I'm just really, really, I don't, I'm going to use the word worried, but I think in a legitimized sense, I'm really, really worried about where we are in our churches and how many are going to be able in, to endure what's coming. I'm very concerned about it. And listen, I want to sing happy songs. I, I loved worship this morning. It was so good. We ought to be able to come in and get refreshed. So it's, it's, it's not about, you know, we have to walk around, you know, just, oh, I'm a worm, I'm a worm. That's it's not what I'm talking about. But neither is it this, this ridiculously detached triumphalism that, that refuses to acknowledge the veracity of Scripture that says, literally, it's not just all hell's going to break loose on earth. The wrath of God's going to be poured out on the planet. And we're just, we've developed such a a taste for syrupy Christianity. It's like if it's not sweet, it can't be legit. God would never say anything to make me uncomfortable. And that's been preached so long by so many that now the church, a new generation coming up in the church, has no appetite for conviction. And when we lose our appetite for conviction, we don't repent. And when we don't repent, we apostatize. And so he says what he says. He says, Jeremiah, um, your opposition's gonna get harder. Your circumstances will prove more challenging. 
And that's how I'm answering your complaint. Friends, this is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is our God. This is not a different God. And the, the call and the alarm, and it, it needs to happen in countless areas with different people in different ways, but I'm telling you, there's somewhere every single one of us needs to wake up. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. We need a baptism of sobriety. Because we're intoxicated with some things. We're drinking from the shot glass of the culture every day over and over again. So we're intoxicated with self, living for self. We're intoxicated with success, what makes me feel valid. The culture, and I think even a large part in the church, is intoxicated with sex. Listen, I know we talk about sexual sin all the time because it's not because we're, you know, just... It's because we're watching it kill the hearts of people, men, women, children, and families. Pornography and adultery and fornication. And don't talk to us about that because that's just old-fashioned. No, 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 no. You're not listening to the alarm. He actually does care about our behavior because our behavior is a reflection of the reality of our hearts. We're intoxicated with status being more, having more, living in the right neighborhood, driving the right car. We're just drunk on that stuff as a culture and it's getting in the church. And I think the number one thing that we're drunk on and we need a baptism of sobriety. I think the church has gotten drunk on success. We've redefined success. Success is no longer living unto the Lord with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, loving him that way, and then living, and then loving your neighbor as yourself. It, that's no longer successful in us for, for us. Why? Because we've been throwing back shots of what the world defines success on. And so we've given the best of our loves to temporal things, and the Lord's just saying, he's not here to just make you feel terrible. He's saying, no, you, it's, it's not so much that right in this moment you're bad, it's that you're asleep. And so if you're hearing this message and you're feeling like Jeff says God is telling us we're bad, then you're more asleep than you know because that's not the message. The message is you're asleep. You've been raised with Jesus Christ. You're a new creation in him. Old things have passed away. All things are becoming new. Therefore, since you are risen with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ sits on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things of the earth. For you are dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then you will appear with him in glory. Then you will appear in glory. Then you will appear in glory. Then you will appear in glory. Until then, we, we live and we walk as those have been awakened. For we live in the day and not in the night. Will you stand to your feet?